Take a network break, grab a virtual donut and a caffeinated beverage and join us for our weekly sprint of IT news and analysis. we got stories on a critical set of security vulnerabilities, new firewalls, some financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your apps faster and easier. And Network Break listeners can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. You can find all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And after the news, we have a sponsored TechBytes conversation with Nokia. We're talking about their digital sandbox. It's part of Nokia's fabric services system for data center network automation. The digital sandbox lets you create a real-time virtual model of your data center network. Not only is it a model, it's actually able to be worked on. So it's actually a lab as well. So you can not only use the sandbox just as a model of the network and look at it and inspect it, but you can actually configure it and do things to it before. Right, test changes against it and so on, yeah. So exactly. it's more than just a model. It's actually a, a literal sandbox. It's actually a lab environment too that you can it's work on can and then play with. Yeah. And then you can wipe it and then start again if you want, which is amazing. So it's it's worth listening to to hear about how that that's a unique approach to intent-based modeling. One more promo, check out the Packet Pushers YouTube channel. We've got instructional courses on Python for network engineers, learning BGP with Russ White, an introduction to EVPen and much more. Just search for Packet Pushers on YouTube. That's free, by the way. That uh, we used to have a members-only site where we'd been uh, paying people to write content and that content is now being pushed to YouTube. It's free. Um, yep. You know, the course with Russ White on, you know, training around BGP or learning BGP is commercial grade training. And, uh, and Russ White, of course, is well known. And it's there on the YouTube channel for free. Yeah, we got two Russ White courses up there. As I mentioned, at Python, we're going to be getting an Ansible for networking course up there soon. So, yeah, there's a mm. lot going on. Plus, Ethan's recording something on TLS with somebody. So, yeah, there's going to be more stuff coming out. So keep an eye on it. Yeah. We're refreshing it. And constantly. I don't think we haven't asked for monetization. So it shouldn't even be ads. Like we don't want Right. You shouldn't see ads when you watch yeah. it. Yeah. That's not to say YouTube's not putting ads in for its own purposes, but it's not because we are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> there I is a, I guess a YouTube can put ads in if it so chooses these days. And so, yeah. Yes. Mm. We're, but we're not getting any money. From yeah, that's right. Check it out. All right, let's do the news. Uh, security research firm Armis has discovered multiple vulnerabilities in a TLS implementation that could potentially affect millions of switches from HPE, Aruba, and Extreme's Avaya switch line. It's called TLS Storm 2.0, and the vulnerabilities enable remote code execution and could allow an attacker to take full control of the switches. Uh, so I'm not too sure this one actually deserves a name, Drew. There was a lot of fuss about this in the press and in in the Twitter sphere, you do have to have access to the switch to be able to take advantage of this to get a remote code exploit. That's not something that most people should have. That should, you know, the access to the management plane should be restricted mm -hmm. and should be, and if you have any radius or anything, the disadvantage is that there's still no fix for this. I was checking the Aruba security advisory and there's no patch notes yet to say that there's an update available to patch this. I did some further digging. It turns out that they're using a library, a commercial SSL library from a company called Meccano and Nano SSL. And apparently the manual for the Nano SSL actually has examples on how to correctly clean up the code after you do an SSL session or TLS session and the vendors have failed to follow that advice. So they've done, you know, somebody's failed to uh, correctly um, code the, the thing, and that's why the problem is because they left it open, and so it can be used to get an escalated RCE. Right, so it's not a problem with the TLS standards. No. It's not a problem with the encryption. It's a problem with the implementation and how folks are uh, putting the glue code mm -hmm. together for this library that they're using in their software, yeah. Yeah, poor coding, poor testing, which is not new. But, you know, the, the challenge here is that there's not a patch uh, yet, which is disappointing. But then 
I don't know if they were notified. I haven't didn't see anything to say that there was a notification period or that Armis, the company that found the vulnerability, had notified them ahead of time. Um, all the vulnerabilities do have CVSS scores of nine or higher, so they are significant, uh, even though there may be issues with uh, how an attacker would get access, but they are there. Uh, we've got links in the show notes if you want to go start digging around on what you need to do if you have these switches. Uh, I do know for the Aruba switches, uh, it's the Aruba OS uh, network OS. Um, so the newer Aruba OS CX based switches are not affected, uh, which may help you decide what you need to go do. Mm -hmm. uh, moving on, Cisco, they're teasing a technology they're calling predictive networks. Uh, it's using telemetry gathered from multiple sources. Cisco says predictive networks will learn patterns, predict user experience issues, and provide problem solving options. Of course, there are no details on how predictive networks will be delivered what tel telemetry sources it will use. This just seems like uh, they're, they're teasing something to come out more details later. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a vaporware launch. Uh, this is something that Cisco's got internally. Um, and we know that Cisco has a history of bringing products to market uh, and then taking them around to customers while they're still in the development phase and showing them to customers and getting customer feedback. What do you want? What excites you about this? So that's what we saw, say, for example, years ago with ACI, we saw the same thing with SD Campus. Um, these are for, you know, uh, and then they get customer feedback, what features matter. And I think for this one in particular, Cisco will be looking for which market to introduce it to, because this is AI ops, as far as I can tell. There's not a lot of announcement here about what it is. And AI ops is a general purpose, um, automa you know, using uh, self-automation of the network. And mm -hmm. it could be done for the WAN, it could be done for the SD-WAN, could be done for the data center, could be done for the campus, could be done for, right. you know, service providers. And they'll be trying to decide which market to attack first. So what I mean there is I would draw lessons from the Juniper Mist experience where they started with the AI just on wireless. And that was because that was the where they could start the training and the, you know, build up the expertise. And as they say, you know, they started in 2014 and by 2022, they're now able to bring it to the data center. There's, we're talking this week that they think that the next phase for uh, the Juniper Mist will be to add it to the Abstra uh, data center so that they can get intelligence and start bringing that automated orchestration stuff to that. So this feels to me like, uh, I used to call it the fat man on the bus seat. You know, when the fat man sits on the bus seat and then there's no room left for anybody else to sit there. That's mm -hmm. what this is. This is saying, we've got AI ops, so that's enough. No, we don't need anybody else in the market getting a head start on us. You know, we've got something coming, just hang on. Just, you know, and if you go to your Cisco sales rep and say, well, where's your AI ops strategy? They'll be able to say, oh, we've got predictive, predictive something, the predictive network, and it's coming real soon. And that could be three months. It could be a year. It could be three years. So in the case of ACI, it took four years for ACI to arrive on the market after the demonstrations. So you might... You know, be careful here that Cisco is um, probably doing the right thing and looking for customer feedback, but, you know, betting your strategy on it might not be the smartest thing. Yeah, I speculate that Cisco is watching Juniper's Mist uh, really start to get traction in the market. We know that um, at least Mist AI on the YLAN side, Juniper is using that as a wedge to get uh, switches into the campus, to get firewalls into the campus, and then maybe uh, from there into the data center. I think that's making them nervous. So they, they're like, we need to have a response here. Uh, I will also note that, you know, Juniper with its AI push has been um, coalescing around the tagline of experience first networking. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the short marketing slick that Cisco put out about predictive networks, the word experience shows up everywhere. 
Uh, so I think mm. they're like, oh, we, we Juniper's, you know, kind of eating our lunch here. We got to try to maybe freeze potential people who are going to go look at Juniper and say, okay, I'll wait for Cisco. I think you're right that their strategies kind of try to like freeze the market mm -hmm. and, and keep people from checking out Juniper. Yeah, that that's how it seems to me. And I did, you know, there's three links from Cisco here. You read them all and they all basically say the same thing. Um, there's no, there's no real content With, and they don't say much, they don't say much. And then I went off to read a bunch of press articles where briefings had been given and they don't say much either. Um, so hopefully, you know, you can take the lessons from that is I potentially wouldn't wait, um, on the basis that it's not probably not soon. This, it would require a lot of work. As I said, AI ops is a really difficult thing to do. Juniper's got eight years here of Head Start, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously through acquisition, but that's fine. Uh, I don't know of an acquisition that Cisco's done here to help them get ahead as quickly as possible, but still, I think that Cisco's got a long road. I think the evidence would be Cisco's got a long way to catch up here, and um, I'm sure they'll be making a good product over time, but I wouldn't be racing into this on that basis. I sort of wonder, when I read about this, I, it tickled my brain to think about Cisco Tetration, which they launched years mm -hmm. and years ago, which was a giant rack of equipment that was supposed to suck up all kinds of telemetry, and yep. I think they pivoted it to doing micro-segmentation. I wonder if they're mm -hmm. leveraging that as part of this. And they also um, had uh, network analysis, which was uh, the uh, visibility, to, so it started to make intelligent analysis of the Tetration data. And right. that was sort of, I saw that as a step towards AI, but that was three or four years ago. And I don't, that product still exists. It's been rebranded a few times and there's a few others. If, if it's working on the legacy technology, I'd have concerns that Cisco might still be developing in Java. And every time Cisco writes code in Java, I would seem to have problems. So ACI is very resource intensive. Tetration was very resource intensive. Uh, Network Insights was very resource intensive, and I, I would be concerned. I would like to think that Cisco's taking a much more cloud-first approach here, shifted yes, to yes. a more modern language, used much more modern tooling. But again, no evidence. You know, Cisco is doing demonstrations. I've heard from a few people saying that Cisco has been demoing this to customers, and they've seen it working on different parts. No, you know, and so there is something there. But you know, what the final product looks like, we'd have to wait and see. I would also say that they bought Thousand Eyes, so they've got a ton of WAN telemetry there. Mm -hmm. Was it is it AppDynamics that Cisco owns um, yeah. that gives them access into application behavior and usage? Again, another resource for them to be mining for mm -hmm. information. So I do think they've got the data sources. The question is, how do they package all this up? How do they deliver it? Mm -hmm. How do they make it actually usable, similar to the way that Juniper has done with Mist? Yeah, and and I I would just want to know that the underlying application platform is modern. So that it yes. you know doesn't require huge amounts of resources to operate because that's been a, a sticking point for some customers around some of the technologies in the past. It just you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of technology just to run a fairly straightforward tooling, whereas other companies can do the same thing in much less you know a server or two. So I also suspect that this is a bit of a trial balloon for Cisco Live US, which is coming up uh, in June. So just a few weeks from now that we may get more details about this. I hope there's more details about this mm. uh, at that event. Yeah, no, they usually would keep that as the big announcement. If they had something to announce, you wouldn't pre-announce it like this. You would have something to demonstrate, I think. So I think it's... I don't know. We'll see. We'll put it on the prediction. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Either that or I'll buy you a beer the next time I see you, <laughs> if I'm wrong. Fair enough. <laughs> 
All right, moving on. Uh, Fortinet, they have announced three new firewall appliances. These are targeting the data center, the campus, and the branch. Uh, we'll run down them very quickly. There's the 3700F. It's a data center firewall. you got 400 gig interfaces. It can also serve as an application proxy as part of Fortinet's overall ZTNA platform. Then there's the 600F Campus Edge Appliance. It includes Fortinet's custom security ASIC. It's working with 25 gig interfaces, and Fortinet claims throughput of 7 gigabits per second while decrypting and inspecting SSL traffic. Uh, and last but not least is the 70F. This is a branch appliance. It's got SD-WAN, firewalling, routing, and ZTNA capabilities. Fortinet doesn't seem to have any problems shipping hardware, does it? We'll talk about their financial results in a little bit, but they don't seem to have any supply chain problems that they talk about. And so to see companies releasing new hardware is quite odd at the moment. It is interesting that, you know, Fortinet, we've seen lots more attention turn to the cloud, to virtualized instances and all that, and Fortinet's continuing to invest in hardware appliances and specialized silicon, um, that's for accelerating inspection and, and handling encryption and decryption. Um, and that bet so far seems to be paying off for yeah. them, as we'll talk about later in their financial results. Uh, they haven't necessarily, yeah, they, we don't hear a lot from them about supply chain constraints, although... I assume that they are also facing them because no one is immune to those. No, no, but they don't seem to be reporting them quite the same level that, you know, other companies like last week we talked about Extreme and F5 and they have, you know, really significant backlogs. Uh, and this week we'll talk about Arista and others. But, you know, odd to see new hardware releases in the current supply chain environments. Now, obviously these would have been put in motion a year or two or three ago, but still, right. um, you know, custom silicon, they're still delivering them. And it's all about bigger. So a 400 gig interface data center firewall, that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's big iron. I have, you know? I have to say there's something comforting about, yep, it's just a big box, goes fast. That's it. Like, okay, yeah. good. There's not like too it, much yeah. else in the announcement, to be fair. No, but what else do you need? <laughs> what else do you need? Big box goes fast. 400 gig <laughs> interfaces. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look at the Chrome. Get the Chrome, mm, yeah. So much Chrome. Like even the Campus Edge is a 25 gig interface firewall with seven gigs of, right. you know, Decryption yeah. and SSL. That's that's uh, yeah. Monkey box. The price point. The price point would be interesting to know. But yeah. Yeah, that wasn't in the press release, so you <laughs> definitely need to ring up your your sales rep and, and find out what the sticker shock is going to be. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. You can develop, deploy, and scale your modern apps faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. And you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Network Break. All the details are at linode.com slash networkbreak, all one word. And Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple, consistent pricing regardless of location, so you can choose the data center nearest to you. You also receive 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoff regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash network break and click on the free create free account button to get started. All right, back to the news. Uh, Ireland's central statistics office says that data centers in Ireland are now consuming more electricity than rural homes and that electricity consumption by data centers in that country has risen by nearly one third in just a year. Yeah, this is something that we've talked about a lot over the last four or five years, which is the increasing consumption of power by data centers can actually exhaust the power generation in a given region. And Ireland is popular for, particularly for US companies, setting up data centers for Europe. And that's partly to do with the fact that there are tax advantages. The Irish government is giving away tax breaks. Um, there's yep. also some EU subsidies, but also access to a very good 
uh, workforce. So Irish yep. workers are highly trained. So as a result, there's a lot of data centers in Ireland and they're also right on the Atlantic cables, like the transatlantic cables land on the Irish seaboard facing Americas, which is a positive. Um, and so now they've got a situation where the power grid is heavily loaded with data centers from a range of companies. And the thing about data centers is unlike houses, is data centers draw current all day. They you know, 24 hours a day, it's pretty steady. They don't like go up and down. Whereas household power generally low during the day and then in the evening between six and eight, the power spikes and then runs down again. And so you have a problem where, you know, some data centers set up in Ireland are actually required to generate their own electricity and actually may even contribute to the grid. So somebody pointed out that Microsoft in some data centers actually has its own generators uh, and mm -hmm. then is actually required to contribute and will actually contribute to the grid from those from those generators from time to time. Um, <laughs> So this is this. There's a couple of things here. One is, of course, if you get a data center in your area, does the power grid have the capacity to take it? So we see things like Texas, right. you know, after its recent outage and so forth. Um, you know, does the power grid because it takes a long time to build power generation? If you want to build a multi, you know, very large, you know, coal-fired or a nuclear or set up a solar array or or even wind farms, you're talking three to six years by the time you go through the approvals and the environmentals. Right. And, so this right. is a concern, and this is part of the reason that we're seeing such an emphasis by the cloud companies, the cloud hosting and coasting companies generally, on power consumption, because I think they're struggling more and more to actually get allocated power. Because if you're the Irish government, you don't want to run out of power, you know? <laughs> right. It's almost like they've been too successful at attracting companies, and now parts of the government are starting to say, wait, we also have citizens we have to serve, mm. and if data centers are consuming this much power, one, we've got to worry about our own citizens, and two, we've got potential climate goals we need to meet, uh, mm. and data centers create a lot of carbon. We've got to take that into account as well. Yeah, it's just, it's just one of those background concerns, and you know, it flows down to us in the enterprise as uh, vendors are under pressure to make more power efficient, to deliver more performance at less power. And so forth, and that's part of the reason we're seeing so much emphasis on new silicon and new chips and ARM CPUs in particular, is the option to consume less power for more compute. So we don't need more power just to go more. We should be able to hold the power at the same, but get more out from it. Is is probably where we're headed. And in a similar vein, I've been seeing several stories pop up about you know rural locations in the United States that welcomed in Bitcoin miners because they thought, oh, great jobs and stuff. And it just turns out that prices uh, for electricity are going up and they're dealing with environmental issues like noise. Uh, so it isn't necessarily turning out to be the great deal they thought. Mm, yeah, that's often the case. Well, that's the case with anything, chicken farms, pig farms, but, you know, right. light manufacturing, heavy manufacturing, it's all jobs, jobs, but yeah. So yeah, not that not that many jobs in a crypto farm. No, electricity not costs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So electricity is going to be an issue for everyone. I think. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to read more. And we'll move on. Uh, Apple, Google, and Microsoft have announced they are expanding support for passwordless authentication standards developed by the FIDO Alliance and the World Wide Web Consortium. Apple, Google, and Microsoft say they will build support for an expanded set of passwordless capabilities in their platforms. <laughs> Very exciting, this. And I think it's very real for us in networking because of the shift to identity-based networking. So in this here, we're talking about passwords are not good. Everybody knows that. And we would all like some sort of hardware token to do 2FA. And hardware tokens, however, up until now have been really difficult, really expensive. People lose them. They don't carry them around all the time. You know, sending out new ones is very, very difficult. So this FIDO standard basically takes the 2FA features and adds them to smartphones. 
And the proposal here is that Apple, Google, and Microsoft would sync up their FIDO implementations, which is a public key 2FA type thing, so that uh, one authentication on your smartphone or Windows or Mac OS would be unified. And so if you want to do banking apps that have face recognition and fingerprint ID, you wouldn't have to keep doing it separately. So today when I try to use face ID on my iPhone, I have to do it once for my banking and then again for something else and then again for something mm -hmm. else. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, so I authenticate once and then I've got sort of like a, I don't know, a credential for the day or something that I would use. Well, you'd be able to use the same... 2FA for all of your websites. You'd be able to log into corporate websites just as easily as you would to your personal. So maybe you want to log into LinkedIn or Twitter. It would be the same 2FA standard and mm -hmm. the same process. And so once your device is enrolled, you start using the same public key infrastructure for the whole thing. So mm -hmm. um, you, if you want to understand more, um, there's a bunch of links here on how it works, like the FIDO Alliance and then link to the Apple one. But, you know, obviously the device makers win here because their devices become more embedded into the daily lives of everybody, of course. So in effect, your smartphone becomes much more essential than required to have. On the other hand, a majority of people already have a smartphone today um, and over time. And unfortunately, some minority will be excluded, of course, people... Uh, not everybody owns a smartphone. Not everyone can afford one. Not everyone can operate one. You know, elderly people, uh, disabled people may struggle. So right. um, there are considerations there. But on the whole, if you're an enterprise, if you can start to use people's smartphones as a 2FA, wow, you know, that's a real step forward for enterprise security. And this, I guess, is potentially more secure than that SMS text messaging uh, 2FA. Well, may more because SMS is uh, transmitted in the cloud over the network. Mm -hmm. If you've got mm -hmm. access to the SS7, you could hijack somebody's text messages. And yes, SMS messages are not secure. Okay. They, they, and we've had any number of people hijacking people's accounts by overriding the SMS messages and taking control, yes. Yeah, I've definitely got to do some more reading then to figure out how this works because... Mm -hmm. Yeah, passwords are a problem, but I'm also, I worry about centralizing mm. identity and authentication because then yeah, well, this is a place where you have to go to steal it. Yeah, well, if you read the FIDO, basically it's just like uh, the phone has a private key and you have a public key. You share the same mm. public key, which is always public anyway. And yep. it's just a way to standardize that. We're already close to it now with FIDO. The FIDO Alliance is pretty well tested now. It's been around for quite a long time for 2FA. But synchronizing the standards means that we can do it for a lot more and have a consistent way of doing it going forward. I mean, to have Apple, Google, and Microsoft behind it and pledging to mm. uh, follow standards and hopefully implement them in a way that will make them cross-platform would be better. Yeah. And potentially secure, right? So once it gets that sort right. of scrutiny and, you know, so maybe don't rush into it again, but, you know, I'm excited for it because I think it will be uh, good for the good for the world. All right, links in the show notes. Uh, let's get into some financial results. We'll start with Fortinet. They've announced uh, their results for Q1 2022 for the quarter. The company had revenues of $954 million. This is up 34% year over year. They had net income of $138 million, also up over last year. Yeah, bonkers numbers. Uh, the thing here is that Fortinet is a security company. It's already highly valued. It's something like 42 times profits to earnings. So it's very share price, very high expectations. But, you know, to book 50% of bookings up 50% year over year, billings up 36% year over year in the face of the supply chain, uh, product revenue up 54% year on year. That's just the quarter, right? That's just this quarter. That's right. not year on right. year. Um, 
And against the background of, so tech stocks over the last month or so have generally been falling away by 20%. There's been a bit of an exodus from the market as people reprice tech stocks from the high prices of the of the pandemic. Um, and so what we've seen is a bunch of falling here, but Fortinet's share price is just flat, which is basically equivalent to a 20% rise. And, you know, uh, it's just extraordinary just how different this is compared to everybody else. You know, when we've looked at F5 last week, we looked at all the others. This is a really extraordinarily really different story compared to everybody else. Yeah, that 34% uh, year over year in revenue, I wonder if that's pent up demand or they were actually able to ship devices or something because that's just kind of a, an outrageous number and not something that's really sustainable. Yeah, it feels like it, doesn't it? But, you know, they've yeah. been doing it for several quarters in a row. It's it's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, there is, and of course, security is one of those evergreen areas that does tend to do very well mm. uh, despite the prevailing economic conditions. Yeah. Well, yeah. security is a growth area. And this is why, you know, when I measure up companies who've got security, if they're not growing, they're failing. Um, all the others aren't necessarily growing. And that's fine because that's normal in the current market sort of thing. But this is eye-popping growth, you know. It is, it is. All right, we'll move on. Arista Networks, they also announced results for Q1 of 2022. The company had revenues of $877.1 million, up 31.4%. There's another great quarter uh, mm. from last year, and net income of $272 million. Lots of interesting things about Arista. One of the things that they talked about particularly is that Jay Shree was highlighting that she's now getting into strategic discussions with customers. So Arista has typically been a point solution. You know, we sell switches. That's what we do. And what they're saying now is that we're actually moving up the food chain to become a strategic partner for some of our customers. I don't get too carried away. I mean, 70% of Arista's <laughs> business is still in the US, so they're very US-centric operation at this point in time. But they also say... Uh, that we've added manufacturing capacity and component supply in response to demand. And they took a highlight to you, a supplier decommits make forecasting accelerated shipment momentum difficult. So this is um, what's happened is that vendors who have committed to supply something are sometimes failing to deliver within with less than a week to go before the delivery was expected. Um, mm. So what they said was, yeah, uh, in the analyst notes, the decommits come literally at the week we are expecting to components. So they surprise us, right, when we're looking to build them, which is why we struggled, frankly, in the back half of the quarter, not getting the components we need and just having a lot of our contract manufacturing capacity waiting on key components. And the only way to resolve that was to pay extra expedites by orders of magnitude to get them. Sometimes we could get them and sometimes we couldn't. So basically they've got orders, they're expecting them to come in. And then at the last minute, the suppliers are saying they can't. Now, uh, there was a secondary comment where they turned to John to uh, Joe Cool, who's the uh, head of the ordering or the the purchasing team, and he said, "We see very specific reasons for these commits. Some of them can be test capacity, some of them can be yield related, and some of them are logistics issues as well. Suppliers work through that. So, um, you know, some of the analysts were asking, are you being gazumped by a competitive supplier for certain parts? You know, stuff like that." And they're saying they don't think so. So they put that publicly on the record. So uh -huh. we're now in a situation where Arista has now ordered 4.3 billion in components over multiple years to be able to maintain its supply. That's a lot of money to be wow. forward ordering. Yeah. Yep. Mm. It really is. Yeah. And that's an increase of over 1.2 billion from the last quarter. So they're, it's a multi-year commitment and they're sort of expecting to have like pre-existing orders for all of the hardware they need for the next two years. So hopefully it gets better. 
Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I noticed in the press release that, that accompanied the announcement, they have some highlights. And one of the highlights was a quote from Microsoft saying that Arista is sort of a, a cherished partner of theirs, which, again, signals that Arista is, is putting a lot of its eggs into the Microsoft basket selling switches to Azure. Mm -hmm. um, although I will also note a few weeks ago, we talked about Arista's foray to branch networking. Mm -hmm. They announced new switches and APs targeted at branch and edge environments, as well as a new branch firewall. So I expect Arista will also be moving more strongly into SD-WAN uh, over the coming months. Yeah. And last week we talked about Nokia being successful with sales to Microsoft Azure. Apparently it was right. the leaf switches in this case. Yeah. Um, presumably if Arista is struggling, they're multi-supplying. We don't know that, of course. But potentially, if Arista can't supply the bigger iron in the spines, then maybe Nokia gets a shot at that too. Yep. Yep. If it's all running Sonic, then yeah, Microsoft mm. presumably doesn't care. Well, they might care a little bit. Well, it depends on who's got supply, I think. You know, as long as it's exactly. running Sonic. Right. They, <laughs> who's got a box for me? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap up uh, with a little bit of space networking. Uh, satellite broadband provider Starlink has announced a portability feature that for an extra fee lets users bring their satellite dishes when they travel. For example, if you're RVing or uh, you know camping in an area with poor cell service, you could use that satellite dish for internet. I guess I hadn't thought about Starlink being used as a mobile thing. So you definitely don't want to put it on top of a car or a boat and drive around with it. It's not designed because it actually <laughs> no, has to. That's not a great idea. <laughs> well, it's not designed to be movable as far as I understand it. It's meant to sort of, you put it on the ground and point it at the sky and it will automatically orientate to where the satellite is. So it actually has some yes. angling type of yes. stuff. But if you keep moving it all the time, uh, Starlink is saying that they actually know where you are and they tune the satellites to send signal into your area or to have antennas focused on your area according to you know, the standards, right? So they don't want to allocate the entire spectrum or put satellites into orbits where there's no one there. So this is what they're trying to do. So what they're saying now is if you're going to be portable, you're going to have to pay a little bit extra. Maybe there's some load on the network if you move it around, at, you know, when you authenticate or resync, who knows? Maybe it's just a way to gouge you for money. But either way, at least they're offering you the ability to set it up, tear it down, and then go to the next location and set it back up again. So maybe that's something. Yeah, I think portability makes perfect sense for a satellite broadband service because presumably it is global. So if you're, you know, like I said, going camping and you're, you've parked for the night, you're in your spot and you want to watch uh, some Netflix, then you go out onto the roof of your van, set up the satellite, mm. wait a few minutes, and then off you go. Well, Netflix, at a, like it's going to be like 150 pounds a month for a Starlink just to watch some TV. Maybe you want to just get out the hippie TV and light a fire. Of course, yes. Well, you never know. Or, or you want to stream some music or whatever. Yeah, okay. Right, right, right. I'm not going to judge how people can. <laughs> I am. <laughs> That's why you go camping. It's like... Uh, some issues to be aware of. Uh, it only works for the continent where you register for the service, so you're not going to bring it uh, on your European vacation. The dish can drain your vehicle battery, and the service is only best effort if you're using it away from your home location, so you may not get uh, the, the typical service levels. Yeah, go and check out the Starlink uh, website about it because there is some interesting stuff there, limitations and stuff, but it's you know just nice to know you could move it around, I think. Hmm. Yeah, and I expect this is a capability that they'll enhance as, as time goes by and they get more satellites in space. So yeah, interesting. All right, well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes talk with Nokia about their digital sandbox for building a digital twin of your data center network. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're going to play in a sandbox that is a digital sandbox from sponsor Nokia. Nokia's digital sandbox is part of its fabric services system for data center network automation, and the sandbox is integral to Nokia's approach to intent-based networking. Our playmate for this episode is Erwin James. He is product line manager at Nokia. Erwin, welcome to the podcast. So Nokia's Digital Sandbox, what is it? What are we talking about? How does it work? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, the shortest suite of it uh, is that we uh, are able to create a digital twin of uh, an existing network in a containerized environment running on Kubernetes. Okay, so you're saying I can build essentially a, a live copy of my data center network using the sandbox. Yeah, exactly. Now, there seems to be um, a bit of a trend in the industry now around digital twins in general, and not just you know applicable to networking, um, where you would try and stand up a digital twin of whatever infrastructure you are running uh, in order for you to validate some changes and mm -hmm. ensure that any configuration changes you're making would get accepted by, by, by the system in which you're testing against. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've kind of taken that approach, but in the networking world, you know, configuration is is really one small aspect of what we expect out of a network. And really the resultant state is kind of what's really important to make a, a, a network function, right? Um, and a network that resultant state being, you know, whether all the way from, you know, port operational state to, you know, BGP adjacency states or all the way up to, you know, the actual ribs or fibs you're actually programming in your, in your, uh, in your switches or routers. And so what's really important in the networking space is that if you are going to create you know, a digital twin or a digital sandbox of the networking environment, whether it be a full or partial representation of your network is that you actually able to capture the resultant state of the real network into that uh, digital sandbox. And so what's really important, what we've done with the digital sandbox here is, yes, we've created a digital twin, but additionally, what we're able to do is actually leverage a couple pieces of the network operating system, SRL Linux, which is running on the switches um, to extract all the state that's happening in the network and inject that into the digital twin. So the digital twin is not just a ideal representation, but also a stateful and, and real representation of what's happening. So what you're saying is it's not just the configuration of the network built into a model. And then Correct. I can run changes on the model and see what the result, you're actually saying the digital twin is holding things like the rib and the fib. So if I'm going to do something with the BGP, the digital twin will actually have a snapshot of the fib table. And I can look at what I, if I do a manipulation on the BGP, if I do a route filter or whatever, then I'm actually seeing the fib change as well. Correct. Exactly. And you can take that down all the way down to say adjacencies, right? If you're mm. dealing with an ideal scenario, of course, when you make a change, you look at, you know, the, the current, the current output and you, you, you make a change, you look at the, the resultant output. But if there happened to be a, a scenario where a BGP neighbor was potentially down, and this is what ends up causing outages, is these fallout effects of making a change on a network, which may already have a small problem potentially, and, and it could be a cascading effect, right? And so what you're trying to do here is, as best as you can, and this is best, this is based on what you're actually trying to change and validate and test, is have that representation of state to make sure that if you were to make this change at this moment in time, you would be able to catch these types of cascading problems or potentially the be able to validate the actual effects, as you said, uh, Greg, on mm, the yeah. route table or, or any other changes mm. trying to make to the, to the network. So when we talk about intent-based networking products from a lot of other places around that we talked about, we often talk about the model where they read the configuration and then there's a model. And then I can apply the configurations to the model and see what the final configuration would be. But you're really taking this complete step forward and saying, I can actually snapshot MAC tables, CAM tables, RIBS, FIBS, as well as the operating configuration and that I can do a show IP route in the digital twin. And that actually is a reflection or, you know, at that time of what was actually running in the network. Exactly. Correct. Yep. That's right. right. That is really quite a, a transition. That's a, that's a real inflection. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And, and because in, in a networking space, that's what's really important, right? And this is what ends then leads to potential uh, uh, outages or potential problems in a network is, uh, 
is that you you are acting upon a very important piece of networking, which is the state, right? The resultant mm-hmm. state of having a BGP neighbor and BGP policies applied is really the rib and the fib, right? The resultant mm-hmm. state of having uh, certain port uh, configurations applied is really the operational status of the actual interface itself, right? And that's, that, and that's what you're trying to get at. And the changes you make is really a validation of what happens if this yeah. were to happen to the state today, right? So I want to really draw out what you're doing with this digital twin. We're not talking about a few switches in a lab that sort of tries to mimic kind of what you've got in production. You're actually, you're making essentially, you're running instances of SR Linux in containers that match the configuration of what you're running in your production network. And then how are you keeping this model up to date? That's exactly correct. So as part of uh, XR Linux, it has a very strong streaming telemetry infrastructure built into it. And therefore, we're actually able to extract the state from the, the system uh, using streaming telemetry uh, and then store that within the fabric services system. And because of that, we can extract and any topology we instantiate in the digital sandbox, whether it be a full-blown topology, which, you know, of course, on large networks may be a bit challenging, or a representation of a, a subset of the network and a subset of the devices, we can say, well, inject the state that you retrieved from the real network using your streaming telemetry and put that into the digital sandbox and, and set the state values in the digital sandbox to be a reflection of the real the network at this snapshot moment in time. And is there a lag between what I've actually got running in production and what's in my digital twin? That becomes a bit more of in terms of what you're trying to test. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, uh, we use streaming telemetry with GNMI and therefore we are we can get live updates. So there's no CLI scraping. It's, you know, if there's an update on mm-hmm. a field, mm-hmm. we can get the update immediately uh, stored in fabric services system. But when you start doing tests against a network, you typically want to see at a moment in time, because if there's mm. changing values, it could affect the uh, outcome of the test, right? So it kind of depends what you're testing. But generally speaking, you could do it in real time or near real time, or you could say, you know, snapshot at this time today, right now, what would happen, you know, if I were to do it in, in the next five minutes or so, and, and you can get a snapshot, run your tests and say, okay, well, that, that, was, the, that, was, the, that was the outcome. And how, so the, the question in my mind now is if I've got this digital twin with all this configuration and all this state, how much compute power does it need? Do I need like, you know, a rack full of servers to make this work or do I just need a modest server with Kubernetes and, and each router, each SR Linux instance is emulated in a container? Is it a lot or a little? Um, I mean, kind of defined, depends on your definition of a lot and a little. Of course, mm. uh, the containerized version of SR Linux is very small footprint. Um, mm-hmm. And so that allows us to build these fairly large topologies in a containerized environment on Kubernetes. Now, of course, and then the, the second piece of that puzzle, of course, is what are you trying to represent? Are you running a full-blown equal one-to-one of your network? Then it'll depend on your network size. So this could be quite large in size. And so you could have a very large Kubernetes cluster that's able to support this topology if that was something of value to you. Mm. That being said, we also allow the functionality of deploying a subset of it. And so you can label devices in the real network and, you know, as let's say storage top of rack switches, and right. you could you could come and, 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 and the digital sandbox and say, well, build me a representation of my storage racks. And that may only be, you know, four racks and, you know, eight switches and a couple of spines, and then retrieve the state from those and represent that in my digital sandbox. And so you can work on a subset of the real network if, you know, if the scale were to be a concern for you uh, in terms of your, your infrastructure supporting fabric services system. So that means for smaller companies who are using your products, they could do something with a modest server, you know, something that's, you know, just left over or retired. But if you're a bigger company, then you might want to commit some more serious resources to a, almost a perfect digital twin. Exactly. And then it comes down to also the value you see in the digital twin and how much you want to represent the real network. Exactly. So how are you tying this notion of the digital sandbox? I can see, you know, the operational value. How are you tying this back into intent-based networking, which is a much bigger topic? 
Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I you have to kind of remember the, the three pillars of intent-based networking, right? The first is you have a declarative approach to configuration management, right? So tell me uh, what the end state and end goal is. And as a, as a system, I will get you there, right? Mm -hmm. the, the sequence of events that need to happen in between is none, nothing you have to worry about. I will get you to, to the state at which you want, right? The second is really this, this concept of abstracted business intent, uh, where, you know, tell us what you'd like to do and we'll figure out all the, the networking uh, knobs, the, the VPN, the, the VXLAN and the, the multi, you know, um, uh, multi-homing VPN configurations and all the knobs that need to, to be configured on the devices to, to reach that business intent. And then that ties of course into, you know, close the validation of that, of that intent, right? Did we actually achieve what we wanted to from a state perspective? And our, uh, did we get to that state we tried to, tried to, um, to declare? And of course, the last piece of that is kind of like the single source of truth piece of it, right? So you have a single system which has a single source of truth of what the network should be doing and what it should look like. So really, if you tie this together with Digital Sandbox, it's really about the workflow and the validation and the results of the declared intent. So you would say, give inputs into Fabric Services system, and we could validate those at a, say, design stage early before production. Uh, make sure that the, the desired input have the desired outputs. So the desired business intent declared to Fabric Services system results in what you're expecting in the network. And then you can take that a step further and go into say, you know, day two or operations standpoint uh, and work with say maintenance intents where, uh, you know, what happens if I were to upgrade a set of my switches to the latest uh, software version, right? Um, what needs to happen for me to do that? Do I maybe want to test a subset of the switches in my network uh, and what happens before you actually put this into production. So, you know, build a representation of my network, change the uh, intent, right? So you're going to change the software version that you may be running or change the desired goal, which may result in a software version change uh, and then test this, validate this before we actually go to production and make sure that we've got the desired results. Okay. So you mentioned source of truth. Uh, if I'm understanding correctly, it doesn't sound like the digital sandbox is the source of truth. It's the fabric services system that you're using as source of truth. Yeah, exactly. So fabric services system is the source of truth in terms of uh, the set of inputs that you're putting into it and the set of outputs are then generated. So configurations would be a set of outputs, for instance, hmm. for given switches. And so what you want to make sure of when you're using a digital twin is that the, the set of inputs are identical between the two. Otherwise, you've kind of missed a step, right? So if you right. have a, a human or a system try and, and talk to two different systems, you, you could have a mistake be made, right? It may not be exactly what the inputs may not be exactly the same. And so if you have a single source of truth and the input, the inputs are exactly the same. In our case, Digital Sandbox will use the identical inputs, the identical declared intent into Fabric Services system to build its digital twin representation. So there's no, there's no changes mm -hmm. that are happening. It's literally exactly the same thing that's being pushed to production. Right. And of course, Fabric Services System is a configuration engine. So it's not just this digital sandbox is just a part of Fabric Services. It's not a separate product or a feature or whatever. Fabric Services System is a whole intent-based configuration engine for a data center network. And it does the observability, gives me telemetry to monitor and see traffic, configure EVPNs, automation, all that is in Fabric Services. This digital sandbox is just one small feature of this overall platform. Exactly. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So my understanding partly of intent is the way that uh, companies offering intent-based systems get it to work is you kind of have to work off of, of templates. Do you have a similar model? And are, I'm talking about templates for how the underlay is constructed, how the overlay is constructed, how you do your ongoing operations. Yeah, absolutely. So we do offer, you know, what we call, you know, day, day zero intent design templates, which is more around, you know, 
your racks and number of switches per rack yeah. and, and, you know, your leaf spine, kind of the topology aspect of it, and then your resultant uh, configurations, right? So this is kind of your design, uh, you know, day zero, we call that uh, uh, intent templates. So we have those. Uh, additionally, uh, we have what we call day one deployments uh, templates or what we call workload intent templates, um, where this is more about the actual, you know, services you're offering on top of that, whether that be some, you know, uh, VX on IP verfs that are running that are supporting some app specific applications. Um, maybe they're more dynamic in nature and that they're talking to some sort of commute compute systems, like uh, whether it be VMware or OpenStack or Kubernetes. And these is what we call our workload intents. And we, we categorize that as our day one uh, uh, intent templates. Uh -huh. And then of course, then we have the kind of the day two plus, right? The operation side of the house and that we call maintenance intents. And, and coming back to an example I, I mentioned earlier when it comes to let's say upgrading software, right? Uh, you know, upgrading software on its own is is one piece of the puzzle. And that's, you know, pushing an image down and rebooting the device and it comes online. But really what you're trying to do is as part of an upgrade and a, and a, and a, and a, and a maintenance intent is actually many more steps along the way to get you into that to that state. And that may be, you know, uh, uh, draining traffic from a device, right? So cleanly draining traffic from a device, ensuring there's no traffic being drawn to a device before you upgrade it. Uh -huh. You may be wanting to run an upgrade in the real network, but on canaries. You may want to run on a subset of the devices first for a number of uh, uh, days or hours uh, before you actually upgrade the next set of devices, right? And so these are really what we call maintenance intents and in that you're declaring what you'd like to do, of course, the end goal, the end state, but you're also potentially uh, have a flow in that, in that you may be wanting, as I said, testing canaries, you may want to validate the impacts of small subset, you may want to drain traffic from the nodes before you, uh, before you upgrade mm. and so on and so forth. Is that something I could use the digital twin for to see what the impact of a, you know, a, a NAS upgrade is going to be? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the key, I mean, that's one of the key and early uh, uh, use cases, which we found people latch onto is really, I want to move to the next software version. And of course, I want to validate that my configurations will adhere to mm, that. And yeah. Fabric Server System will take care of that piece for you. So you don't really have to worry about the configuration aspect of it. However, let's see what happens to my resultant state, right? If I do an upgrade, mm. am I still getting the same routes that I'm expecting? Am I, are my BGP policies still functioning as I expect? Uh, yeah. let's, let's, let's validate that in the digital twin first. And once I'm comfortable with that, let's move that to a maintenance intent in production and, and, and start pushing that upgrade across the network. Yeah. And it's always possibly that the hardware has a problem because there's always an interface yep. with the software and the hardware, but that's so much easier to troubleshoot because Absolutely. you're much more confident that your configurations are solid before you get there. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Stop a so, lot of arguments very quickly by saying, I know it's not the software. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. operationally, it just shifts your level of confidence up. That you, and you've done some prep, you've got, you've probably got the work in your mind. So if you've done some testing before you go to push the final upgrade, you're, you're ready to go. It's a, it's a definite operational shift in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really about risk management. Of course, a digital mm. twin, you can't represent the ASICs, right? I mean, there's a, there's a piece sure. of the, the puzzle which you cannot have in a digital twin. And that is really the effects of FABO rib changes on a specific ASIC, right? Uh, the hardware itself may have some issues. It could be SFPs, it could be whatever the hardware is, could be having harder problems. Of course, those you can't catch in a digital twin, right? So really what you're trying to do is just limit the amount of problems you're going to have and limit the amount of, of potential configuration issues or resultant state if the hardware were to be in a potentially, you know, fully functional environment, right? Well, we're almost out of time, but Erwin, I want to find out, you know, the thing that hasn't come up in this conversation is, is CI, CD, or NetOps. Is that where you see this, uh, you know, the fabric services system and digital twins moving? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just put all the pieces together, this is kind of where you end up, right? Uh, everything we've talked about from building digital twin, 
to validating is really best suited for something like a pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. A number of changes which will happen before you push something to production. And so what the digital sandbox and fabric services system allow you to do is really do true CI in that CI CD pipeline, where you can actually do the true validation before you have the confidence to push that to production. And so there's a whole topic around uh, a CI CD and how that would apply here. But certainly, as you can probably tell, the, 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 the full circle uh, uh, ends in putting all this together in a pipeline and doing the validation uh, uh, pre-production. And I uh, understand we'll be talking about that with Nokia in a future uh, Tech bite. so keep an ear out for that if you're interested in that element. Uh, that does wrap up our time. If folks want to find out more about uh, Digital Twins or Fabric Services System, where should they go? They can uh, reach us at nokia.ly slash data-center-fabric. All right, that's nokia.ly slash data-center-fabric. We'll have that and other links in the show notes that accompany the podcast. Erwin, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, and thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor, and thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find many more like it, along with uh, all of our community blog. It's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.